Peace and blessings. This is Muslims for Peace podcast. You have tuned into Muslims for Peace podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. So thank you all for your speeches. I think you covered kind of different things. Um, some of you spoke about family, like the nuclear family and, you know, your parents and your siblings. And some of you spoke about family in a more general sense, like what it means to be a family of believers or a family in faith. Um, I think one of my first questions is, I think even the notion of family is something that's kind of contested and challenged in the modern world, not just explicitly, so not just in the way that people speak about family or put down family or um, sort of like our cultural um, understanding of what a family is and how it fits into our lives, but even, I think, the way modern society is structured makes it challenging to upkeep family ties. You know, you're expected to go away for college and to live alone in a dorm. And you're, um, you're expected to, go, to travel anywhere, wherever you get the best opportunity for work. And your career sort of takes precedence over family and all these sorts of things that are expected of people um, in a modern secular society and in a highly individualistic society. So what are... But at the same time, I think oftentimes we project sort of an idealized image of the past and what the past looked like, and we sort of um, maybe attribute false uh, characteristics of the past and the way that family structures or whatever existed. So what do you think is the proper approach or balance? Like how do we have sort of a critical eye um, to, the, to the challenges we're dealing with while also not, um, you know, creating this this false image of a golden of a golden past that is now gone and that will never return to. What do you think is the proper approach, and what do you think are the actual challenges we need to face head on, as not just as Muslims but as people of faith? I'll just be very brief. I, you know, I just took a lot of your time, and there are esteemed guests and, and others who can contribute. Um, I believe that Islam teaches us that the way we perceive family needs a shift in paradigm. Meaning, we have an obligation towards God. That's what the Quran teaches us. We have an obligation towards God to make time and effort towards our families. And that is why the Prophet Muhammad teaches us that once you get married, and that is the first step to establishing a family, you secure half of your faith. And that the prayers of a married individual is worth 70 times more than a person who is not married. This is something we all grow up with. But you don't see that about prayer. You don't see that about fasting. You don't even see that about the pilgrimage. That if you go to the pilgrimage, you secure half of your faith. Or if you go to, uh, if you pray, you secure half of, your pay, half of your faith. But if you get married to establish a family, then you secure half of your faith. Therefore, we have to look at it as an act of worship that's, that we seek nearness to God with. That is why when you're trying to get to know someone for marriage, you cannot manipulate them. You cannot lie to them. You cannot abuse them. Can you abuse someone in act of worship and say, this is an act of worship, I'm abusing my spouse? Can I 
abuse my child in this act of worship? Absolutely not. Can I abuse my parents? Absolutely not. Therefore, when, I, when we look at it as something that is more than what we're told on the surface of things, it is the greatest act of worship in the religion of Islam, in the eyes of God, or else, you know, why do people even have a marriage ceremony and have an imam come and recite the nikah ceremony for you? It's just a few words. Because in those words, we say that from now on, from this moment onwards, God is going to be the witness to this union, and we can't run away from his eyes. We can't run away from his supervision. So I believe once we understand family in that sense, then we go out of our way to make time, and there is no family whatsoever, and that is part of the Quran, without challenges. And the professor spoke of the story of Joseph. That's exactly, why, why is the story of Joseph so detailed in the Quran? Because God wants to tell me that Jacob, who was a prophet, and who, you know, his children were the children of prophet, took their own brother and they sold him as a slave. So no family is spared of tribulations and tests and ups and downs. What allows us to navigate through those troubles whatever they may be, whether now you're away at a dorm or there's poverty or there's illness or there's... What allows us to navigate is love and forgiveness. Without those two things, no family will survive. Every family will break. That is why Jacob forgave his sons. Joseph forgave his brothers. And that is the message that I take away from the Quran. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Um, I, I definitely agree. I think foundation, the foundation of not just family, but faith is, is forgiveness and love and mercy. And that's why we begin every, every, verse, every chapter of the Quran with a reminder of Allah's all-encompassing mercy. I have a question for um, Sabiha and Walter. You know, I think we know sort of the challenges that exist, you know, and largely political challenges that have been sort of inculcated in the culture now and now our social challenges in the Muslim and Jewish communities. What do you think are some practical ways to move forward in our relationship building beyond just interfaith events or, you know, like these sort of like one-off events like we have today, which are, you know, beautiful and I, I think important, but what do you think we can do in our everyday lives to move forward and what sort of vision do you have for a sort of pan-Abrahamic community that, um, that advocates for itself in, in America and beyond? Can you hear me now? Thank you for that question. Uh, Walter and I have learned some lessons as we have tried to navigate this path of bringing Muslims and Jewish communities together. And the first one is that we are Americans first. And whereas the Israeli-Palestinian conflict matters deeply to us, we live here, not there. And unless Muslims and Jews come together as one family, one Abrahamic family, as Americans, 
unless we do that, we run the risk of being wiped out. And I'm not kidding when I use these strong words. We saw what happened on January 6th. That was just the prologue of worse things to come. We've heard President Biden's remarks about democracy being at stake. If democracy is hurt, the communities that will be most affected will be the minority communities, whether it's the African-Americans, whether it's the Hispanics, Latino community, uh, the Chinese community, or the faith communities that are minority communities. So we have to come together to preserve democracy and pluralism, and that has to be our priority as people of the Abrahamic faith. Walter, you want to pick up on a few more? Sure. Thank you, Thank you so much, Sabia. So the second, the second point we stress, we have an eight-point plan, actually. The second one is speak out and stay engaged together against injustice, um, whether at home or abroad. So whenever we can speak out together against injustice, whether it's here at home, whether it's in Ukraine, whether it's in... Israel, Palestine, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, that's a, that's a big plus. Then, we, then the, the other one is about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict because, as I said, and Sabia and I both said, that it's, you know, that's the biggest challenge for keeping the tents tend to drive us apart. But there's something we could do to turn that net negative into a net positive, in, in our opinion, and that to together uh, support the work of NGOs, wonderful, wonderful organizations that are working over there to bring Israelis and Palestinians together while saving lives and improving conditions on the ground. So I had mentioned that I was involved in a group called Project Rosanna, which is trying to strengthen uh, health care, in, um, especially in Palestine, with, a, with the support of Israelis, and uh, has done amazing work in getting ventilators to the Palestinians during the during the COVID crisis, as I say, saving, helping to save children by getting them to hospitals, using volunteer drivers, women's health, many, many things like that. That's one example. There's a lot of groups like that. So if we did that together, if we could save lives together over there, that's a blessing. Because both of, as we said, both of our communities say, if you save one life, you save the world. Uh, the, th the third one, or the fourth one is, uh, allow others to speak up if we agree or not. Um, I, I say as a, as a Jew, there's things that uh, Ilan Omar or uh, Rashida Tlaib have said that I'm not, I'm not comfortable with, but I think they have the same right to speak up for Palestine as Jewish uh, members of Congress have to speak up for Israel. So they, they, that's, that's very important that we, we see that. And maybe the most important one in my mind is we should not allow the Israel-Palestine conflict to be weaponized to drive us apart here at home. And there's so many ways that's happening Almost every, you know, almost every day. Um, the uh, one of the ones that bothers me is rela relating to the the BDS boycott, uh, divestment, and sanctions movement, uh, which tries to um, institute an economic boycott of Israel. And while I do not agree with that movement, because I think there's certain aspects of it that um, I don't agree with, uh, that they want to say that there should be a free return of refugees, Palestinian refugees, for example, inside of Israel. Nevertheless. I feel very strongly that they have a right to speak out. They should not be criminalized, you know, as, as some are, are, are doing, you know, whether with congressional resolutions or in states 
a, a Palestinian American woman in um, in Austin, Texas, I think several years ago. Texas passed a law saying that if you want business with the state of Texas, and that meant the public schools in this case. So she was a speech therapist, and unless she would sign an affidavit saying she would not be involved in BDS, she would she would lose her job, which is what happened. Those kind of things are are, are really um, really wrong. Do you want to finish quickly, uh, Sabia? Yeah, and we have to be careful about labeling people as being either, either anti-Semitic or Islamophobic. When we criticize Israel's policies or their leaders, it is just that. It is a criticism of the leaders and their policies. It is not a criticism of all Jews. And similarly, when we are critical of Muslim leaders and their policies, it's just that. It's not Islamophobia, it's not anti-Semitism. And yet we have to be careful about the sensitivities on each side so that our statements are not construed as being anti-Semitic or Islamophobic, particularly if they were not meant to be as such. Thank you so much, yeah, absolutely. And I think both of your comments sort of point to me to sort of the absence of real political leadership, you know, across the board that we have. Like, I think politics, at least in an Islamic ontology, is like, you know, you cannot separate ethics and akhlaq and sort of spiritual uprightness from leadership. Like, to be, to, to be a political leader, it means to act in the correct, the morally upright way in every situation. And I think right now we're at... We're in a place where all of our communities are sort of bereft of real leaders. And this puts us in a tough spot because those are the representatives of the community and we um, and, and the community just becomes confused because it's like, oh, well, what do, we, what do we do with this? If there isn't true Islam, there isn't true Judaism being practiced at that level, um, how, do we, how do we grapple with that? It's a really difficult thing. Um, so thank you both. Professor Cole, you deal with the pre-modern Islamic tradition, among other things, in your scholarship. And I think um, there's a lot of interesting things that happen when you go into the tradition. You know, you have sort of what I described earlier, this tendency to, you know, paint a rosy image of the past. Um, you also have sort of what what is considered progressive or like the postmodernism is really critical of the tradition and is really anti-hierarchy and anti-structure and anti these sorts of things. What do you think should be the role of looking at the pre-modern tradition? What do you think we have to learn from history and how do you think we should be engaging with these texts and engaging with tradition and with um, the way things were and, and what do you think that should do in informing how we think about structuring our communities and our families going forward. Do you think there's an overemphasis on tradition? Do you think we don't engage with tradition enough? As, as a historian, how do, you, um, how do you think about the role of history in shaping our lives? Well, that's, that's a big question. Uh, thank you, Sarah. Um, what I would say is that as historians today practice the discipline, uh, history is about context, uh, it's about change over time, and it's about causality. So it's not an ordinary way of thinking. You actually have to learn how to think this way. And I think the virtue of thinking in this way is that you begin to see 
which parts of history are more fluid and subject to change over time, and which are more perduring uh, and uh, more structural. And, and then you get a sense of maybe how to uh, adapt uh, these texts. And all of the great world religions really are based on texts that are over a thousand years old, uh, in some instances, 2,000 years old. Uh, and obviously, it seems to me, as a historian, it could not be envisaged by the authors of these texts uh, that people would never change, uh, that, that the details and the minutiae of everyday life which crop up in these texts, in the Hebrew Bible, in the Gospels, in the uh, Bhagavad Gita, in the Quran, uh, that, that those are what is important. It seems to me that from a historical point of view, what's important is to put your finger on the causality and to say, why is this voice, which is represented as the divine voice, why is this voice telling us this? And if you concentrate on the why questions, rather than how, or rather than the details, uh, then I think you, you get a hold of something that is perduring. Uh, and uh, I, think, I think, you know, the th kinds of things we've concentrated on here today uh, about family and uh, um, said Kozvini's talk about uh, the conundrums that the modern family can face, it, it emphasizes the degree to which those aspects of these ancient texts still have wisdom to share with us. So that's how I'd try to answer your question. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's obviously also such a large... We're dealing with thousands and thousands of years, and we want these, like, snappy, you know, easy answers to our questions about the way things should be. And, yeah, looking at the texts and trying to get at the essence of the text, not limited by, you know, the time or the particular socio-political constraints that um, these figures are dealing with, I think is, is, is the thing to do. Would, is that what you're, sort of what you're getting at? Yeah, and I think this is maybe referred to in the Quran itself, because at one point it talks about the Quran as an earthly exemplar mm -hmm. of the archetype, the Umul Kitab. Yeah. And uh, so it's, it's those things in the Quran which are archetypal, which address ideals that I think it, it was intended to convey to humanity. Yeah, yeah. And also the, the names of God, you know, as representing sort of archetypes of what human beings should aspire towards, and the masculine names and the feminine names as sort of archetypes of what the ideal man and woman are and the ideal person. Yes, there's a, a, a famous verse in the Qur'an, uh, in Surah Al-Furqan, it, it says uh, that the pious walk upon the earth humbly. Uh, and, and who are these people? It, in the beginning of the verse, they're identified as Ibad al-Rahman, the servants of the All-Merciful. So many subsequent Muslim commentators have suggested that the two things are related. It is because they are the servants of the All-Merciful and attempting to emulate that mercy that is an attribute of God 
that, that they're then enabled to walk upon the earth humbly. And it says, when the wayward taunt them and harass them, they reply, as-salam. They reply with peace. Wow. So it is the uh, emulation of one of God's attributes, according to these authors, that allows them to behave in that way. Wow. wow. I think that's a great note to end on because I'm getting eyes and messages from the organizers. Um, but I think the, the subject of humility, I think, is so important um, to, be, to be servants of God and to have humility in our dealings with our family. And, and that's sort of the, the essence of what makes a good family, is dealing with each other in humility and forgiveness and mercy. And so I pray that God enables us to build humble, forgiving, merciful, righteous families um, among our spouses, our children, our parents, our, um, our close of kin, and among each other as believers in one God. Um, and may he unite us all in his eternal mercy and love um, in the hereafter, inshallah. Thank you so much to everyone for attending. Thank you so much to our speakers. I learned so much listening to all of you today. It was truly a pleasure. And I will invite um, Sajida Haji, who's um, a Muslims for Peace volunteer and member of the executive board, occupational pediatric therapist and mother of two, um, to close us out with uh, the raffle winners, inshallah. So thank you again. Um, and thank you again to all of you. This has truly been a pleasure. Yes.